Welcome to the Project Horse Podcast. We're making advanced horsemanship accessible, sharing down-to-earth training advice and practical exercises with horsemen dedicated to accomplishing their goals. Whether you're hitting the trails for fun, training a project horse at home, or refining maneuvers for reining or cowhorse competition, we'll help you take your horsemanship to the next level. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Project Horse Podcast. My name is Jake Lundahl. I'm joined here with my brother, Luke. In this four-part series of episodes, we're going to chronicle the development of four different reining horses that came in for training in the latter stages of 2018 and have stayed with us on into 2019. We're going to look back at their starting point when they came to us initially, what some of their problems and issues were that they brought to the table, and the specific things that we did to solve those issues and accelerate their progress through the program. So we've got two Colts and two Phillies to talk about over the next four episodes, and the Colt we're going to start off with is one that we own. We call him Shooter Around the Barn, and this is a horse that we're very proud of and were able to purchase back in May of this year. So he's had a little bit more time in the program than the other three horses we're going to talk about, and we've been able to see his development over a longer term. So Shooter, we purchased him uh, the end of May. We went out and uh, I got to ride him and kind of evaluate him and kind of feel him out, try him out. Um, he is uh, Shooting CDs is his registered name. He's by a stud, Don't Stop Shooting, which goes back to Gunner. And then uh, he's out of a mare, CD's Hidden Secret, which goes back to Highbrow Cat. And uh, so he's a, definitely a very unique combination. He's kind of got the dumb kind of laziness of Gunner, but he's also got that feeliness and athleticism of uh, more of a cow horse. So it's kind of a unique combo. But going out there and riding him and evaluating him, obviously he was very green when we when we got him. He was started late. You know, this is end of May, and uh, we purchased this horse, and he'd had about 30, 30 to 40 rides is kind of what I was told. So very green in, into the deal. Started late, but the way he rode and what I was feeling with kind of what he had for a start for a turn, obviously, you know, he'd, he knew he had been trained up enough to where he had a little bit of a turn to him already, or at least the concept. Uh, you know, you could lope some circles on him and he had the idea of, you know, kind of the word, whoa, starting to stop, but not really much of anything yet. Um, cause again, only 30, 40 rides into it, but everything that I felt with him reminded me of a lot of really nice horses that I got to ride as an assistant. One in particular, like we did the, the podcast a while back chronicling Titan, you know, the process of him getting started. And then when he went off to Arizona to kind of get tuned up where he needed to be and then getting ready to go into the actual show pen and do something with him. This horse reminded me a lot of how that horse felt the way. He, obviously, he's got kind of the same lope, that gunner lope. It's a little bit choppier, uh, a little bit rougher, but just the way about him, his his attitude, his mentality and his athleticism, it really, really reminded me of of that horse. And so that was kind of what sealed the deal for me. So I remember I got, you know, the moment I got off that horse, I got on the phone with you, Jake, and I called you up and we got to get this horse. I really, really like this thing. Yeah, we were definitely really excited about Shooter because he not only clearly had the athletic talent and ability and just that presence as a young stallion that we thought, oh man, you know, he's really got some potential here. But what sealed the deal for us was the mentality. You know, you kind of touched on that earlier. We see a lot of parallels with him and that Titan horse, especially when it comes to disposition. He's kind of got that lovable, 
almost dopey, kind of chill, good-natured attitude about him. But at the same time, he's got the sensitivity and the athleticism to really do something. It's a unique combination that you don't often find. And seeing a horse like him, we considered every penny spent on him a good value, and we jumped on him. Yes, I really like that disposition. He's kind of got that gunner disposition to him. Like, you wouldn't know he's a stud just walking in the stall and rubbing, loving on him, leading horses past him in the bar and stuff like that. Like, you wouldn't know. You know, and I really, really like that about him. But one thing in particular that I really like that kind of catapulted the reason why we decided to make this investment and go get this horse is as an assistant and you as well, Jay, we like, we got to ride some really, really great horses in that, whether it was on days where say, you know, the trainer was gone or whatnot, we got to just lope out one of their like best ones or just kind of, you know, mess around with it and, and just put a ride on it. Or whether it was uh, two-year-olds and er, come and three-year-olds in training that we were assigned to ride ourselves. We got to ride some really, really nice horses. And one factor that was kind of present with all the really, really good ones that seemed to, to make the cut, all the cuts. You know, every time there was a, two, a culling of two-year-olds and then early three-year-olds and then mid-year three-year-olds and then come to the fraternity, here's my final pick. Like, it always seemed like there was one common denominator with those horses, which was when you're really not asking much of them or you're just kind of letting them be, they're pretty just quiet and wanting to be kept to themselves, and they're just content to be where you put them. You know, So if you're just sitting in the middle or you're running a fast circle, you're not asking for any more or any less, they're just content to stay there. Like, they're like, when you turn the switch off, they're just quiet, lazy, dopey, you know, like an old hound dog on the porch. So just, you know, whatever you want, I'm, I'm content with being right here. But when you push that button, they just come alive for you. You know, they're like a cat that spray, like you've seen those videos where there's a cat on the floor and then they put some weird object behind the cat and it doesn't know it. It turns around the season, just springs into action. Kind of like that combination. Like when you turn the switch off and you're not really asking for anything, even in a maneuver, if you're just not asking for any more, they're content to be there. Or if, let's say, you finish a maneuver that was really high intensity and you shut it off, then they're just back to sleep, right? Then when you turn it on again, it's like, boom, they're in action, you know? And it's a fine balance, too, in training where if you are too aggressive or you go overboard, you can get a horse like this very hot and nervous and worried because there's this fine line that's so easy to go overboard one or the other. You could not do enough. And then you've got this lazy, dopey horse that you can't even get to lope, or you could go overboard, and now you've got the super feely, hypersensitive type of a horse. You want to preserve that combo of when I shut you off, you fall asleep. You just love being right there. But the moment I turn that on, I want that sensitive, kind of almost hot feeliness to come out so we can compete and we can perform. So right off the bat, getting this horse home. Because his his job or, or end goal here is to make this horse a reigning horse and get in the show pen and compete, we've got a kind of a two-pronged problem, so to speak, you know, or, or two problems really, you know, distilled into, into one horse, which is, all right, we've got maneuvers over here for what we need to do. We're going to be a reigning horse. You've got to be able to turn, stop, circle, change leads. We've got maneuvers here that we need to train for. Over here, though, we've got, okay, it's a 30 to 40 ride Colt, and we need to get this thing broke, 
right? So we've got two issues here, and we need to try to find a way to get both of them done. If all we do is just work on getting the horse broke, start pulling him around and knocking him around and trying to break him loose and just get him to where we just train the snot out of him to get him to feel great and be all feathered light and, and be able to shove body parts around. That's all great, and it would feel good just to ride at home. But then we show up to the actual show, and we have nothing to show for it. They're not going to give me points for, for how soft I can move his ribcage diagonally across the arena in the pen. You know, it's just not going to net me anything at all. But at the same time, I go in there and I just work on, okay, he's got to be a reining horse, so we're going to work on spins and circles and stops. Well, if I only work on that, I'm going to be constantly hindered by the fact that he's just not broke. And so we're going to get in the show pen, and he's going to completely bomb. He's going to run off. He's going to, like, you know, run in, stop, back up, and lay down, you know, or something like that. Or probably, you know, not even stop. You know, he's going to be super stiff and bracy. He's not going to know how to handle pressure. So it's going to hinder us in that fact as well. So there's a, it's a hard balance to, fi- to, to put the two together. But getting him home, we had to assess priorities, which is we need to get this horse broke first. So for about the first month that he was there, you know, maybe more about, say, six weeks that he was there, the main focus was just on getting this horse broke. And maneuvers-wise, they were a a bit of an afterthought, but kind of bear with me as I kind of um, describe this. So the first issue kind of right off the bat was very stiff laterally, couldn't really pull his head left or right. And the moment you try to pull him left or right, immediately his hip would swing around the opposite way and he'd start trying to like walk a circle, you know, very, very stiff. So pulling on his face, immediately it connected with his feet. If you pulled on his face vertically, picked him up backwards, he was a bit kind of bracy and a bit fractious, as in his first reaction was to go up. And then from there, he would just kind of sit there and and just wait. He was He didn't really know how to get off of it. Now, you would hold it there and hold it there and hold it there and hold it there, and eventually he would soften a little bit and you could turn loose. But his first reaction was to get tight and bracy, and it would take him a long while before he would actually give to that pressure. And then the third issue was legs. Getting him to let me handle him with my legs. He was very much, you know, and the, and it's, just, again, it's a style. It's not to take anything, it's just not my style. But there's very much a style of get the horse going, drive them forward and get a lot of forward motion. And then from there, you just kind of manipulate the reins and steer the horse around and you, you create this energy driving the horse forward. And then as the rider, you just redirect it from there, whether you stop them or turn them or so forth. Yeah, that that doctrine we often refer to as FFTN, forward, follow the nose, because that's the refrain you hear from people of that philosophy. And it works, like people that are super successful do that. It doesn't work for us. Just with our background, as much as we like to have a horse broke through the body, soft in the rib cage, able to manipulate their hips and shoulders, we, we just can't ride a horse where everything is forward and it's all happening up front and all manufactured with your hands. Right, right. It's just not something that, for the both of us, it just doesn't feel good. It's it's not the way I like a horse to feel underneath of me. So when you say shooter not able to handle your legs, could you paint more of a picture for people? Like, what was going on? Like, you try to bend him around, around your inside leg, or you try to pull him around on your toe, or, or things of that nature, what he would be doing. So 
for not letting me handle him with my legs. What I'm what I'm kind of referring to there is when I will go to apply pressure with my legs, whether it's vertically trying to soften him up or or laterally trying to say isolate that rib cage and soften him around my inside leg, something like that. Legs only meant go forward more. Legs had nothing to do with get softer. So say trying to drive him up into his face vertically with my legs, that was mentally he didn't know how to handle that because he as soon as he felt my legs, he's like, oh crap, I need to get going. You know, forward, 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 follow the nose. We had to get going somewhere. So legs, the moment I would squeeze with my just my calves, immediately it would drive him forward more. If I tried to to isolate that rib cage and draw him around to the side and soften him around my legs, say even at a walk, the moment I'd press with that calf, it was more forward. He would want to jog it or he would try to, you know, bleed out to the side or escape sideways, something like that. Legs meant go forward to him. Legs didn't mean soft. It was almost so when I say he wouldn't let me touch him with my legs, by that I mean that when I try to collect him up and soften him up around my legs, instead of coming back to me and and softening like I was asking, he would just go faster in whatever we were doing, basically escaping out from under my legs. Starting out, the, in that problem especially in with a horse that really won't let you handle them like that, their first reaction when you start getting them more broke loose and getting them to start accepting your legs as the point of softness the first thing they do is get hotter and more nervous and more reactive, right? Because all they've gotten up to that point is the legs are completely off and, you know, the rider's kind of up there in the the lazy boy chair position. You ever see, like, where the legs are, like, up by the horse's shoulders and they're, you know, they're loping around and whatnot? They're used to that. The legs are only there if, oh, crap, I wasn't doing my job. I need to do it harder or I need to go faster. So their first reaction, because there's a lot more leg now, is to get hot and to get nervous and, you know, to kind of lose their marbles. That's part of it. And so that was why the focus was to get this horse broke first. If we try to put the two together, maneuvers and handle my legs right away, it would have been a complete disaster. So it was get broke, a lot of body control, a lot of, you know, circling was the least of my issues there. Like, I would do plenty of drills at the lope, but it really had nothing to do with circling. It had everything to do with you know, lope off somewhere, come back to me, you know, down to a walk or down to a jog, a lot of bend and draw. We we refer to that exercise a lot, especially in the very beginning of lope off. And then at the end of say, wherever, wherever we loped off to, when we got there to the fence, come back to me, break him. You know, we didn't go right to loping and try and soften him up with the lope. We loped him off and then we came back and we softened him up laterally. Then loped him off, came back, softened him up at the jog laterally. And then we loped him off, came back, softened him up at the jog laterally, and added the vertical with the bend and draw. And bend and draw was a very valuable exercise for him because it really allowed me to take him from the lope, slow him down to a jog, but also handle him with my legs and with my reins, collect him up vertically, use my legs to drive him up over the bridle, and get him to just accept me using my legs. So the first priority was get him broke. A lot of body control, isolating that shoulder, um, moving that hip, moving that rib cage, a lot of lateral, a lot more lateral than vertical. Getting breaking loose those points of mental resistance that were interfering with, say, like that fractiousness, that braciness that I described about pulling vertically. 
where he'd eventually cut his first reaction when you touched his face was to kind of pop up with his neck and get a bit fractious or kind of shattery something, you know, that feeling instead of, instead of fixing the problem there vertically, I went laterally and just got all the, the hard work and all those mental blocks of resistance that were kind of the real underlying cause of that shatteriness, that fractiousness vertically kind of, you know, busted all those down by going laterally. Now, obviously, we can't just get hyper-focused on the the brokenness and just how he feels and just training on him every day just to train on him. We have a purpose, and we need to keep that in mind. Instead of just going out there and just, you know, doing different exercises just to occupy time, we do have an end goal in mind. And so that was where the balance had to be struck of where I say the maneuvers are a secondary. We would start out the ride by doing a lot of the come back to me, let me handle you with my legs, lateral, get you broke loose mentally, get you softened up physically. And then throughout the ride, we would intersperse a little bit of turnaround here, throw in a little bit of a circle there, finish off a loping exercise with a little bit of stopping here, uh, throw in just little maneuvers like that to continue to build that side up. But it was not the main focus. We didn't completely abandon it. We threw it in throughout the ride, but it wasn't the main focus. And the way he he felt and the way he was responding to different you know pressures, different binds I was putting him in with different exercises, that took priority. So if he was having an absolute meltdown with the um, bend and draw exercise, and he was you know especially in the very beginning where they get real, they're really hot and nervous because and, and, you have this, they have to adapt to the, your style of riding. And it's just natural when you start adding more pressure and you change the dynamics. And especially on a horse that's been taught from day one, legs meant go forward. That's how he, from ride number one through ride, say 40, that was what he thought the rules were. So you completely change that and say, no, legs mean get soft, don't run off it's not going to go over well initially. So there was about a three-week stretch where he was hot, nervous, overreactive, hypersensitive, all of that. We just completely ignored all of that and just continued to ride through that. You know, you, you, And a lot of that's where we see a lot of people that we help and, and kind of coach with get into trouble, where the moment they hit resistance for like three, four days in a row, it's like the world's coming to an end. The horse is lost. It's no, there's no hope for it anymore. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. This is a three week stretch of this horse basically having a complete psychological meltdown of trying to figure out what these new rules are that all of a sudden changed overnight. And in that three weeks, you have to be disciplined as a rider and as a trainer to not either first get pissed off that the horse feels worse than when you got it or have a breakdown and like, oh, all is lost. I ruined this horse, blah, blah, blah. You have to trust in your program. Get that horse through that initial learning curve because that's what it really is. It's a learning curve. They're not, and they don't, they're like people. They're not going to learn perfectly. So we had to go through this three-week learning curve. And in that time, if let's say we're doing bend and draw and jogging or loping from point to point, he's running off in between those you know, loping off and he immediately feels my legs and gets worried and tries to run off. Once we get, you know, letting him go, once we get to our next point, break him down, jog the circles, use my legs, 
get him to relax, and then head off the next place. If we're having that issue, that particular ride, it takes precedence over my maneuvers. So I'm not going to then try to stop him when I've got him running off in between my my bend and draws. There's no point in that. So in the initial stages, if we're having a ride where that learning curve was very present, especially in those first about three weeks of the six-week focus on our foundation. So of that first three weeks, when there were rides where he was, you know, worried about my legs, wanting to run off, confused, so he was a bit hot and nervous, I didn't try to then make huge focus on the turns, huge focus on my circling, crap like that, because it would just aggravate the problem. The problem is he's just not broke yet. So we need to get him broke first, get him mentally and physically broke, as in physically malleable and soft the way he feels, but it's big it's deeper than that. It's a mental softness, it's a mental brokenness. So I need that. I need him to understand the new rules, the new parameters, what I'm expecting of him, the different style I have of riding and how I want him to feel. I want him to then relax to that and let me handle him, let me push him, whatever I need to do. And I need him there for me there instead of instead of thinking that he's always going to be in trouble just because I have I have a different style of riding and I'm cueing him a different way and I'm changing the rules. You know, and that's really what it comes down to that hotness, that nervousness, because the rules changed so drastically from no legs and legs are only on to go faster to a lot more leg pressure. And the legs mean either go faster or soften, depending on the way I'm asking him. He needs to figure that out. He wasn't aware that something like that existed. So his first reaction was, oh, crap, I'm in trouble. So they naturally are going to get hot and nervous and reactive. So that was the main focus, I'd say, for about the first six weeks or so. Again, especially the first three weeks, it was more kind of the the mental breakdown and the readjustment of the parameters and of the rules. And then the remaining six weeks of that were still the main focus was on getting this horse broke, getting his body parts broke loose, addressing the lateral and the vertical softness, and just getting him to understand when I pull you, just basic concepts of a good colt. When I pull you give, when I put you in a bind, I want you to think your way out of it. That was kind of the main focus. And after about the first three weeks, the last three weeks of that six-week block, the focus was still on little maneuvers interspersed here and there, but they play a secondary role. After that six-week period, then it was started. Then we started to slowly, mind you, change over the focus to a reigning horse. It wasn't just after six weeks. Now we flick on the switch that okay, today he's going to be a reigning horse. We slowly make that transition. All right, so we started to say okay, now that he's starting to feel pretty broke, and you know, we're we're kind of out of that learning curve. We're not having those meltdowns anymore. Now we can actually start using the stuff that we built, this foundation that we built, to actually start going and doing something with. And the other reason for this, not really reining horse related, is okay, we've done a lot of maneuvers, we've done or we've done a lot of exercises, a lot of little drills. We keep doing that stuff. We're just gonna burn this horse out. He's too good of a horse to sour him on doing pointless drills that he already knows how to do, right? So we need to make that transition. And that's a one real good benefit of riding with Jake every day, having you out in the arena as well, is as trainers, there's there's kind of two schools of thought. We've talked about this in previous podcasts. There's the 
get them really broke, get them really soft and supple and blah, blah, blah. And then there's the other school, which is maneuvers, 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 right? And they're kind of competing and each one, they're kind of set in their ways. The people that focus on maneuvers don't like to feel a horse that's really soft and really pliable. They think it's super wiggly, way too soft. It's hiding behind the bridle. You can't go do maneuvers with it because all the train, all the pointless exercises get in the way. And then there's the brokenness uh, side of the spectrum that doesn't like to ride the maneuvers, maneuvers, maneuvers horse because you can't touch them with their legs. They're way, way too stiff. You can't turn, you know, they don't feel good in your hands. They're kind of semi out of control feeling. So, you know, there's, and neither one of them really like to step into the other's ring, so to speak. Yeah, the, the maneuver people don't like the brokenness horses because it feels too wiggly and you can't do anything with them from their perspective. And the people that like a really broke horse hate the stereotypical show horse because if your feel and timing isn't exactly on point, you will create severe issues. Like you touch that horse a little bit with your legs in a wrong way or you, you know, bump on his face at just the wrong moment or you do anything out, you paint outside the lines in any way. And that horse will immediately flip out. That's where you get the leaping through the air and the different problems and that that nature is that you don't have that foundation of brokenness there. Right. And as much as the maneuver crowd and the brokenness crowd don't like to dabble in the other's ring, so to speak, they also recognize the broke the brokenness crowd recognizes that at the end of the day, they have to do maneuvers and it's not going to feel as great as they want to do maneuvers. But if they're going to compete, they have to finally say, okay, I've got to run this thing down and stop. He's going to get away with being a little stiff, a little straighter than I would like. His head's going to be up a little higher than I like, but I have to run down and stop. We got to work on this. And the maneuver crowd, they realize that, okay, I do have to get him broke. You know, in other, other words, I can't do my maneuvers or he'll be way too stiff and running off and all that stuff. But it seems like it's like a as little as possible type of a basis. And what's very easy to do is get caught back in the category that you're always going to kind of drift back to the category that you're comfortable with. So for us, coming from the background of get them broke, they got to feel good, a lot of exercises and body control, even though you acknowledge that we've got maneuvers that need to be done, you start to do them and then you, you feel the horse kind of unraveling underneath of you or what you perceive as unraveling. It's really not. But you perceive, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little stiffer than I like. The head's a little higher than I like. You know, he did this. He did that. He was pushing against my leg here, blah, blah, blah. You feel that. And so what happens? We fall back into what we, what we are comfortable with, with, which is backtracking, going back to exercises, doing drills to try to fix those issues. And we end up never getting the maneuvers done because we dabble in the maneuvers a little bit. And then we fall back to doing exercises to get them broke because they didn't feel good to us, right? And so that's where we have to we have to be smart and try to bridge that gap. And that's where like having you Jake in the arena riding is a good accountability in in a way. So if I get caught down a rabbit hole of focusing too much on drills and exercises rather than actually going and doing the maneuvers and letting the horse learn the maneuver, get comfortable with it and a lot of those problems would eliminate themselves, I end up just kind of or have the tendency to backtrack into just going back to a drill to isolate a particular problem that I felt that really was just kind of a, a byproduct of a little confusion, them not being them not being proficient enough in the in the maneuver yet, yada yada. The horse was broke, 
We just need to now go do something with it. And yeah, there's going to be little bumps and, and bruises along the way. But guess what? Horses don't learn perfectly. Just like if I was going to learn a new skill, like say wood carving, you know, just because I took a class and the teacher tells me what to do, my first statue is not going to look immaculate. You know, they're not going to hang it up in the Louvre. Same thing here. Just because my horse is broke, got all the foundation. Just like if I'm a wood carver, I bought the, the perfect wood to do it. I've got all the best tools. You know, everything is there. It's ready. Now we have to actually go do the maneuver or say carve the statue and it's going to, it's not going to be pretty to begin with, but with time and repetition and practice, we can build that maneuver into what it needs to be. But we can't just say, try the maneuver a little bit and then up, ah, it didn't work back to the basics. It's like me carving the statue and the first time that I cut into the wood, I screw it up. So then I go back to sharpen my tools. It had nothing to do with having a sharp, a sharp knife of any kind. Same thing here with our maneuvers. And so that transition was an important one to be made of, okay, now we've got this this foundation laid on this horse. Now we need to start orienting him to actually a performance horse and a reigning horse. And so we have to slowly start gradually making that transition. But you can't just throw away the foundation aspect of it and the, the exercises, the drills. You can't just throw that all away and scrap it. Because then slowly everything will unravel underneath of you. Okay, we have to maintain that foundation. We pour the foundation and then we need to keep coming back as like a building inspector and keep checking it, right? Looking for cracks, looking to see if it's shifted, crap like that. That's essentially what we're doing or what we're looking to do in our program is move into maneuver-based things like stops, spins, rollbacks, stuff like that but still just checking a little bit here and there every now and then with different things just to make sure I'm getting the I'm still maintaining that foundation that I had so that it will continue to back me up with all the maneuvers that I'm doing. And now if I feel a particular issue in a maneuver that wasn't there before that's starting to creep into a maneuver, like say a turn or say a rundown or something like that and I've noticed a issue starting to pop up, now I can maybe address that from a foundation standpoint and correct something that kind of, you know, broke loose a little piece of concrete that chipped off or something like that, and then continue to progress instead of dabbling in maneuvers and then heading back to the foundation for safety. Dabbling in maneuvers, running back to found, to brokenness for safety. We need to get into the maneuvers, and that's where that, that uh, difficult but important crossover happened. So over the next several months, we started to do less and less work with the body control, less and less backing circles and, and isolating the rib cage and, and all the different exercises and drills to work on head and neck and shoulders and rib cage and hindquarters and, and all those, those different things. We started moving away from those and actually getting into specific maneuvers and, and focusing more on the turn, focusing more on our stops, focusing more on circling. And the mental side of getting him mentally accountable in maneuvers instead of just doing something because I'm putting him in a bind and making him do it. And let's be, you know, let's be realistic here as well. At the end of the day, this horse, say, you know, a good reigning horse, it takes, it's about a two year project, right? You're going to have a lot of miles on that horse in that two year project. So you have to start being smart about where you put those miles and where that energy is going. So I only have a limited amount of energy to work with every single day and going beyond that just risks the horse that gets hurt or injured in some particular way. So I need to start putting as much energy as I can 
towards the performance side of it, towards my maneuvers, and eliminating how much energy I'm wasting doing drills and exercises. It's like groundwork with this particular horse. When we first got him in, yes, we had, we had to go back and kind of rebuild his groundwork program because he didn't have much there as far as lunging and just handling and getting him quiet to be around and respectful. We had to go and kind of establish that. But then after about four weeks, that was gone. No more groundwork. Why? Because that energy that I was wasting those first four weeks, now we're getting into more important things. We're getting into more maneuvers. We're getting into more focusing on our turns and on our stops and on our circles. There's a lot to cover every single day. I can't be wasting 15% of my energy for the day on groundwork exercises, getting him warmed up, blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, I'm not going to have the luxury two years from now of going into the show pen and taking him out into the arena the night before and lunging him in the show pen so that he can get acclimated and, and, and quiet and tired and, you know, doing different groundwork exercises to get him mentally paying attention. Like, I need to be on his back, getting him warmed up, getting him ready for what he's about to do. We can, I can't continually fall back to more groundwork, more groundwork, more groundwork. So as we moved away from more of the foundation level stuff to actually getting into actually specific maneuvers, one of the first issues that started to clear itself up and made a big difference in moving away from kind of the basics and just the exercises and actually going and doing something was the turns. You know, initially when we first picked him up, when I first rode him, obviously the turns were, they were so-so. You know, like he could step around, wasn't very consistent. He didn't seem like he had a whole lot of a step to him. He was very kind of bent around, arced around in the turn, and you had to hold him in the turn the whole time. You know, he, he, he wasn't really committed to being in it. So one of the big focuses from the get-go was two things, getting him mentally to stay back in that turn, controlling that first step, and getting him to consciously make the choice to stay back with me throughout the duration of that turn. Getting him to watch that inside front foot and control that step to get it to go to the side and draw back, the side and back, getting him to be pushing back towards me throughout the whole turn on a loose rein. That was probably the biggest focus to start with. The second focus that took shape after that was that rib cage controlling that body in the turn, getting him straight, getting him balanced. The more balanced that he got in that turn, the more turn we uncovered. And that was a very good, encouraging thing to see is the more we got him balanced and stood up in that turn, the stronger and easier that turn got. The better he started to step, the prettier it got, the more it just started to come together and a real good, strong turn started to just emerge out of the blue. You know, that would have been probably the most limited area that he felt in the beginning uh, because he was so green and didn't have much of a stop at the time. And the more that we got him, first of all, soft, if we would have completely ignored the foundation part of it, it would have been a disaster because he was so bracy naturally to begin with. But once we got him to stay back in the turn with me, and it wasn't a challenge of having to pull on him and hold him there with my reins, once that was eliminated, it kind of freed his feet up a little bit. But then the more we started to straighten up his rib cage underneath of me in that turn, it really started to take off. Like he kind of took a hold of that took a hold of the reins, so to speak, and really stepped himself up. And so that was a very encouraging thing to see. And the next thing then that was his most limited area, I felt like, after we started to progress further, was in the actual stops themselves. You know, in the beginning, when I first went out and felt this horse out, 
he was at such a green stage of the stops that it, you couldn't really make a huge judgment on the stops from that, you know, because it was so green, just learning to connect the word. Well, the more that we that we progressed with this horse and the turn started to take off and we kind of exposed the stops a little bit more. And that was kind of the next hurdle to get over in our program that would not have been fixed by just going back and doing more drills. And this is this horse was a perfect example of why the the cliche term a stop is just a really good backup. You know, a backup is just an extension of your stop. It's such an oversimplification of what's going on. And this horse was a great case against that and great proof against that. How you can't just back your horse up after you say whoa to make it stop better. This horse was very front end heavy and he was very bracy with his front feet. So when we'd go to stop, he would throw all his weight on his front legs and just lock them together and they would just go right into the ground. You know, he would almost stop better on his front end than his back end. You know, one of those type of a horses. So the big focus then became getting him to connect that word with his hind end and getting him to basically we had to flip the seesaw over to the other side, get the weight on his hind end, lift those shoulders up and break those front feet loose. And this was where where my time in Arizona really was a huge player, especially for this particular horse where it was super valuable. We did a podcast on this prior talking about the stops and that drawing them into the ground, turning them around until they rock their weight back on their hind end, and then heading off the opposite direction. That program of of the stopping was exactly like, I, I mean, obviously we do that with all of our horses, but a horse like this, it's absolutely crucial that he gets that approach to the stops itself, you know, and then once he starts to understand it, then if he stops but not well, then backing him up, followed by turning him around. But if he doesn't stop at all, immediately going to turn him around. You know, the first introduction I had to stopping was more of the approach of the exercises and drills mentality and get them very, very broke. So the program of stopping was say the word, whoa, and if the horse doesn't stop, back them up. The less they try, the more aggressive you are in the backup. So it was just get them to stop and then run them backwards. And then get them to stop, run them backwards. And what happened was, in doing that, eventually horses with a lot of talent would naturally kind of throw you a bone and start stopping. The ones that didn't, though, you would create problems of them being very front-end heavy and being very bracy with their front legs, where they just lock their knees and just slam their, their shoulders into the ground. And it's very rough, uncomfortable, and very ugly stop. This horse, that method of stopping him would have compounded that issue. Somebody with that program would have ridden a horse like Shooter and said, hell, he ain't got no style. That dog just won't hunt. Whereas the development cycle that we know now, which is a lot more sophisticated and it, it's not focused on getting your horse to think backward, it actually creates an incentive to get the horse when you say whoa to think about engaging the hind end there's a subtle difference in the philosophy there exactly exactly so it really paid off to have the benefit of that knowledge in this horse because it uncovered this real stop and the ability that he really had he was kind of in his own way all the time and so it taught him how to actually use himself efficiently get out of his own way and we discovered a really really good stop so that was also very encouraging as well. But again, that was a process. That wasn't something that just happened over the course of, of a week's training sessions or a month. 
This is a horse that we got in May, and now here we are in January. You know, this has been a journey and a process. So in addition to those specific maneuvers, as far as circling, again, the biggest, the biggest issue with that was letting him handle my legs, letting me collect him in the circles. When I squeeze, you come back to me, you let me take hold of your face, let me drive you up over the bridle with my legs. You don't run off or go faster. The circles to the right, he always was a little bit stiffer. He had more of a spot in his rib cage, uh, his right rib cage to the, so kind of he was always more stiff to the inside of the circle. But that was probably the, the first hurdle there. Then the second issue was getting him to engage that circle and find it and stay on that circle on his own, teaching him to start being accountable to, to staying on that circle, um, without me helping him, without me protecting him, you know, so just getting him accountable to that maneuver, getting him to think about that maneuver and engage the whole time without me holding him on the circle. And again, that's all part of the process as well. That's something that doesn't just happen overnight. Something that you have to work on and work on and work on, just progress little bits at a time throughout the course of, of your program. And just a little bit of a tease, maybe for the podcast listeners in a future episode here. Um, again, remember the, the kind of the core focus of, as we said in the last episode of starting this was documenting the journey, right? And in conversations with a trainer that had a pretty remarkable set of runs this past futurity. I'm kind of experimenting and toying with a next step, a supplemental drill to further improve circling and getting that horse to hunt the circle more and more and more. And so we're kind of in the process of feeling that out and gathering kind of the information of the ups and the downs and the different things that come about in doing this exercise that when we kind of have a full scope of it, we can describe it and bring it out on the podcast. So it'll be, once the series is done, we can, we'll discuss this pretty in depth because I'll have a good grasp of, of what I liked, what I didn't like, different ups and downs of it. Yeah. It's good that you mentioned that though, because as much as we've talked about things like the circling and the turnarounds and how we develop our stops, like we had a series of episodes that kind of built up through the early parts of that progression and how we introduce it. I want to point out that we're not set in our ways. As we've always said from the beginning, we're trying to evolve and sophisticate the program. And if we need to tweak things, especially if a slightly different approach or attack angle is going to yield far better results with a particular horse, we're going to try to take that route and refine it and work that into the program. Getting back to Shooter, we've begun the process now of where he's at in his training. Obviously, we're continuing to chip away. We're in a tinkering mindset now where you don't see leaps and bounds of improvement every single day. You've got, when you initially start your horse for the first few months, yes, they're going to just rock it off and they're just going to soak up everything that you teach him day by day. And it's going to feel, it's going to feel great, but we have to be, we have to realize as trainers that the longer you go, you get to a point where you've kind of taught them everything that they need to know or that they're going to know. And then it becomes refining those things. You're not just going to teach them something new and make something they already know just exponentially better. You get to a point where you've laid the foundation. You've taught them the stops, the turns, the rollbacks, circling, lead changes. You've taught them the parts. Now you have to refine them. You're not just going to do something wild and crazy to make everything better. So where it becomes a tinkering mindset. Now you have to nitpick things you don't like about the turn. You know, right now with shooter in the turns. It's all about getting that last little bit of straightness 
in that turn and making the transition to one-handed and being able to train on him one-handed in the turn. You know, with the circling, we're working on this new little additive to the to the program to take what we've been doing and now take it to the next step. And we're working on speed control as well. With the stops, it's just a process of running harder and stopping better, stopping straighter, stopping prettier. Just little things here and there that we have to work on with all these maneuvers to slowly bump them up just a little bit over the course of, say, a week. Like, you're not going to look back every single day and see dramatic improvement. But if you look at the course of the past week, you should be able to see a slow growth with all your maneuvers as you're slowly progressing towards the end goal. So we're just in that tinkering mindset with all these maneuvers. You know, a big one that, here's a good example, too, of foresight and needing to train your horse with an end goal in mind. We're starting to get into lead changes now. And all the prep work we've done before with the body control and getting him to accept my legs, move off my legs, etc., all of that is kind of coming to fruition in changing leads. As a general rule, it seems like gunner-type horses are more prone to having issues in the lead change, especially getting that hind lead to change. They seem to be kind of lazy, dull off your leg. And so the prep work that we have done kind of leading up to that has yielded good results in beginning to introduce these these lead changes. When we go to actually change leads for the first time, when that happened, even though he had never done it before and it was completely out of the blue, it wasn't this massive shock and he didn't know ex- how to handle it because things that we'd been working on up to that point had kind of the subtle underlying theme of lead change and it started to plant in his mind what that was. So even though we went to the lope and it was out of the realm of what he'd technically been working on, it wasn't like completely slap him upside the face. I've, I don't have no idea what this is. You know, we, we had set him up for this and prepared him so that it wasn't a complete nightmare going into it. So I was very encouraged the way that uh, stepped up as well. Other than that, it's just been a process of just chipping away little bits at a time. We're now in a long-term mindset of chipping away at things, building up the maneuvers. There's not dramatic growth with everything anymore. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So, you know, we're very, very excited about having this horse in our barn. And we're, I think we're very, very lucky to get this horse. You know, it's kind of goes into our, what we described last time as underpriced talent. You know, this horse, I think it was a bit of a, of a gym in a way because he was kind of in his own way with different maneuvers. He kind of got in his own way with the turn, got in his own way with the stops. So he was kind of deceptive in what his ability was. As we've gotten him more broke, we've exposed the talent that he really has there. So again, it's it's short in the game and it's a long journey. And we don't want to overstep ourselves or oversell this horse because it's early in the process and a lot can happen between now and the show pin. But we're very, very encouraged with what we have so far in this horse. For sure. And just to wrap this up, I wanted to extrapolate on that a little bit because it plays to our overall philosophy with not just our own horses. But the customer horses we take in, especially for the performance program, is we love it when we can identify and use underpriced talent or that through our more methodical program and our greater focus on softness and body control and brokenness, but also having the judgment to play that into maneuvers, not just abandoning that entirely. That approach, I think, it's almost a make or break deal for for some horses. 
you and I both as apprentices have been part of multiple programs between us, and we've been able to see horses that had a lot of athleticism and talent and potential that we felt had they had this type of a program, an extra focus on just getting them broke, accepting pressure, creating better mental habits, being a little bit more methodical in some areas could have made the difference between that horse making the cut and falling through the cracks of the program. And that's where, that's I think a unique quality that we offer in our program is that we can help develop that potential that's there instead of just riding the horse off immediately because they're a diamond in the rough, but we don't have the patience to get the rocks and the crap away from that and polish it up. So I'm going to shamelessly put in a good word for our performance program because we've got a few horses in training right now, but we're looking to continually build that. We started the program off last year toward the latter half of last year. Um, We were able to purchase Shooter, get a few more horses in for training, but we still have some spots open for the beginning of 2019, especially when it comes to two-year-olds. This is the time of year a lot of people are looking to start cults, and I would say by far our two-year-old program is the flagship of this company that we're building. That is our specialty. It's what we love doing is working with the younger horses. Between us, we take a lot of pride in the job that we do. It's not our only focus, but it's a big one. So if that appeals to you, if you want to find out more about that, go to lundellperformance.com competitors. That is our page on our website where we detail more about our performance horses and the pricing of the performance training that we do. So thank you guys for listening to part one of our series chronicling four different performance horses we've had in for training over the latter part of uh, last year. That was Shooter. He's the one that was in the program the longest. He's the one that we ourselves own. And we thought that would be a good way to kick this off is with him. The other Colt and the two Phillies we have coming up in the next three episodes. And they're quite a bit different to Shooter. All of them have their own personalities, different issues, as well as good points. I think it'll make for some really good episodes coming up. Thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Project Horse Podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and give us a five-star rating to help more horsemen like you find our content. You can also check out the Lundahl Performance Facebook page. There you can message us with any questions or training topics you want covered on the show. You can also learn about our training program, clinics, lessons, and the consulting we do for horse owners across the United States and abroad. Thanks again for listening. 